This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Role-playing the Western. The Mount Washington Map Horde. The films of George A. Romero. And my chrono battle against Augusto Pinochet. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. Ken and Robin would like to begin Ask Ken and Robin by thanking the Golden Geek Awards, uh, who have in their absolutely unquestionable wisdom, don't you dare question it, named Ask Ken and Robin the best podcast of 2012 and the winner of the coveted, very much coveted, Golden Geek Award. It was a gobsmacking honor. We've only just been doing this for a short while, so we are uh, chuffed and humbled by the uh, success of our juggernaut of podcasting conquest and uh, invite you all to bow down before us. Oh, wait a minute. That's not very grateful sounding. Uh, Thank you all for this uh, signal honor. And we would also like to extend our kudos to all who make this podcast possible, including behind the scenes mover and shaker Simon Rogers of Pro Fantasy Software and Pelgrane Press, our other perennial sponsors, uh, John Kavalik of Dork Tower and uh, Drive Through RPG, who rejoin us as sponsors this week. Uh, we'd also like to shout out to our sound engineer, Rob Borges, and our splendid musician, composer, James Semple, uh, who is responsible for all of the great music you hear on this podcast every week. And future award juries note that uh, when you give Robin an award, he becomes an American briefly. So uh, <laughs> count that into your calculations favorably, obviously. Uh, treat that as an incentive, indeed. Okay. So, uh, with our uh, gratitude out of the way, we now resolve other people's problems uh, with Ask Ken and Robin. And it's time, once again, to Ask Ken and Robin. Uh, Ralph Shemon asks Ken and Robin, With the possible exception of Deadlands, the Western genre seems to be a bit of a neglected stepchild of the RPG scene. What are your ideas on why this is so? And what would you put into a game or campaign to make the genre work for a group of protagonists? Well, let's put a pin in the group question for a bit, and we'll come back to that. And I think my answer to this brings me to a thing I always say, which is that what Deadlands did for the Western is it made it popular with our audience by nerd-troping it. And nerd-troping is the process by which one takes a previously neglected putatively mundane genre and then adds fantastical elements to it, fantastical in the sense being defined in the broadest possible sense to include not only uh, magic but laser guns or robots or whatever sort of the various superheroes, the various nerd-friendly genres. And so what Deadlands did is it took not only uh, one genre but a great Cuisinart of fantastical genres from uh, horror to uh, kung fu uh, to the, of course, alternate history genre, and swirled them all together to make the Western appealing to our crowd. Now, the Western historically has gone through periods of being uh, more popular than at other times, but since the late 60s and the uh, sort of rise of the, the last revisionist Westerns, it hasn't been as popular as it was in times past. You don't see tons of different Western shows on television. I think there may be currently, what, one? Uh, so it's of no surprise that it is not as popular uh, a sell to your group of gamers as another immediately more geek-friendly genre might be. Yeah, I think that one of the things that seems is sort of buried in the question is the uh, question of, of what happened to the Western as opposed to uh, why doesn't it... Uh, dominate uh, RPGs, you could just as easily ask, why doesn't it dominate film or television or, or novels or any of the other fields that it uh, dominated back in its heyday? And I suspect that the larger question, is, the larger answer to that is that, uh, you know, role-playing games sort of reflect through a twisted nerd mirror 
the uh, current popular culture. So there's not going to be so many westerns until the you know popular culture comes to its senses and once more uh, installs horses and cowboys and sheriffs on every street corner. Although it is a two-way street, this is I guess a big digression from Ralph's question, but in other ways the role-playing genre has made other genres more popular. That, of course, the initial wave of D&D came in on the end of the uh, 60s, late, or sorry, early 70s wave of Tolkien's popularity, but it, through the D&D novels and through just people being exposed to the tropes of uh, the fantasy genre through playing D&D, went on, I think, to make fantasy a much bigger genre than it ever was and changed the way fantasy is. I think that's certainly true of D&D. I think you'd have a harder uh, row to hoe saying that of other RPGs. I, For example, I am fond of maintaining that Call of Cthulhu selling 300,000 copies is part of why the Cthulhu Mythos Anthology is now a quasi-viable publishing subgenre or sub-subgenre. Um, and I think you could maybe make some argument that uh, some of today's sexy vampires owe a little bit to Mark Reinhagen instead of all of everything to Anne Rice uh, and, and now Stephanie Meyer. But I think you'd have a harder uh, argument with, you know, something like Traveler, which has not brought back big box science fiction necessarily. Well, I think reviving and changing the assumptions of three different genres is a pretty good track record for an obscure little hobby that's still only 40 years old. But we certainly have not done that with uh, the Western, and the question would be, uh, I guess you define the health of a genre within role-playing game by how many different people are taking shots at it. So by that measure, certainly superheroes, for example, which is by no means the most popular role-playing genre, would still be more popular than the Western because just about everybody does their superhero game at some point or another if if there's a company doing a line of different role-playing games, but you don't have the situation where everybody feels they have to do a Western. In fact, uh, other than the original Boot Hill game, which I don't think we can argue is hugely played these days, uh, I wonder, uh, have, do you know if the old-school movement has gone so old-school that they're playing Boot Hill? I'm, I'm sure that someone somewhere is playing Boot, Boot Hill, and you know, I encourage those people to continue playing Boot Hill. It was uh, far from the worst of the TSR uh, attempts to capture lightning in a bottle back in the day. Um, I think that to Boot Hill, you could add um, Dogs in the Vineyard, which is one of the very best-selling and most successful uh, commercially uh, and in terms of play of the indie scene. Indeed, yes. That was the other example in my quiver. But I think that you can make the argument that a lot of the reason that Westerns get greenlit by Hollywood is that individual producers love the Western. And I think that you can look at uh, Western and role-playing games and say the same thing. Aces and Eights is a phenomenally good game uh, by Kenzer and company, but I think that, you know, Hackmaster probably outsells it by an order of magnitude, uh, which, you know, is, is as it, you know, historically has been in the in the hobby, so I shouldn't complain too much. But it does mean that Aces and Eights gets a little neglected. And, of course, my, my beloved uh, Swedish sugar daddies um, at Phoenix Magazine also publish a enormous Western game in Sweden called Western, and I don't know if that's part of the, um, to me, exotic and to Northern Europeans normal uh, great love uh, for the Western that, that the, they have in Germany and the Scandinavian countries. And, of course, our interlocutor, Ralph, is himself a Teuton and no doubt uh, grew up uh, loving the tales of uh, old Shatterhand and whatever German cowboys there are. So I guess that brings us to the next question, which is, how do you configure the Western toward a group of protagonists. And this is often something that you have to do uh, with almost any genre. Uh, Again, fantasy, because we took so much from Tolkien, comes pre-installed with the idea that there's a group of people on a mission together, uh, whereas we kind of tend to think of the Western as being the solitary gunman up against a uh, threat uh, bringing law to a small town or escaping from uh, Apaches or, or what have you. But there certainly are lots of models that you can point to where the Western draws on a group dynamic. And the most obvious of that is sort of the 
one step removed from the ultimate guys on a mission movie, and that would be the Magnificent Seven, yes. uh, which is a, about a group of seven specialists who go on a mission to save a town from bandits. And, of course, as need not be said to our erudite listeners, is the Western adaptation of the Seven Samurai, which establishes all of those initial tropes of the getting assembling the group being the first act and the group uh, fighting and achieving harmony being the second act and then the third act is the big confrontation where they either prove themselves or are destroyed uh, so that certainly gives you your party of western adventurers uh, you can look at uh, classic tv shows and you will find uh, bonanza could be your formula for a group of western heroes that's a group of family members all together on on one ranch, which you could do in anything from uh, Deadlands to a drama system game. Uh, Rio Bravo, uh, one of my uh, favorite films and most rewatchable films of all time by Howard Hawks, is about a group of Western adventurers who band together and overcome their various flaws and become greater than the whole under the uh, manful leadership of the John Wayne character. So there's certainly lots of examples that you can point to, and there's not necessarily... Uh, I mean, it's typical for any genre to be focused on a single protagonist and for us to have to jury-rig uh, multiple protagonists into that and to point to a very small number of examples to point the way to that. And I think that the Western, um, although the iconic figure, as you mentioned, is the solitary hero, there are plenty of multiple protagonist Westerns from sort of the uh, uh, two guys uh, teaching each other uh, mode of a lot of the Randolph Scott films to, you know, the, the pure partnership of something like the Wild Wild West TV show, which is another phenomenal uh, uh, point, pointer towards nerd-troping uh, the Western in the addition of sort of proto-steampunk uh, elements to it, um, and just phenomenal television on every other level as well. Uh, so the, the sort of the two guys on a mission is another really strong Western trope that uh, can be expanded without any any real damage to it. True Grit is, of course, another great example of multiple characters. And uh, Silverado, as well, comes to mind as a, another great model for a, an adventuring party in a Western RPG. Be inserted between it and all of the really great examples that we gave. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I see I have a little more affection for that film than you do. Yeah, but again, um, uh, another example of a, uh, a Western uh, group dynamic is, of course, uh, the, the the Wyatt Earp uh, faction in the uh, in Tombstone and in the actual history of Wyatt Earp's vigilante ride, which was uh, all of the Earps and Doc Holliday and a couple of other guys going out to whack Clantons. Indeed, yes, because in the real world, it does help to have a group of guys uh, who have your back. Even if you're bulletproof like Wyatt Earp apparently right. was. <laughs> um, and another example of a more sort of complex group dynamic would be uh, the... Uh, late quasi-lamented Deadwood, which cites a group of people together in a town and has them interacting uh, with one another in a dramatic fashion. That's not about a team of people uh, doing something. but It's barely about anyone doing anything. Well, yes, it, it, it is the worst of those HBO shows in that it has a huge shakeup at the beginning of each season and then not much happening and then a big shakeup at the end. Uh, again, I think I like that show more than you do, and certainly it can be used as a model for a lot of non-traditional, not less adventure-y uh, Western games. So you could make that the basis of a Skullduggery game. You could make it the basis of a Fiasco game, certainly. Oh, absolutely. Or, as I alluded to earlier, a drama system game. Yeah, I think that Protagonist is actually uh, not as hard, I would say, as um, uh, tuning uh, either the uh, sort of um, pulp genre, which is very often about a singular superhero, uh, or tuning the spy genre, which has been done uh, over and over and over again in, in gaming. Um, and I, I suppose we should also mention that there are plenty of other nerd tropes out there, which is the advantage to a relatively unmined claim, uh, like the Western, in that we haven't really had a great Western and robots game, per se, or uh, Western superheroes. Uh, although, actually, it occurs to me there is Western superheroes, because there's a godlike build that is uh, Civil War era, which is so close to being the Western as to uh, as to almost be the same thing. And it is a shame for people who want a resurgence of nerd-troped Westerns that uh, cowboys and aliens stank up the joint so much. It's uh, the same uh, thing that uh, the Wild Wild West film uh, did. 
for the for the genre and basically killed westerns in Hollywood for another five or six years. Well, now that we've arrived to yet another death of the western, I think we have answered this question and can move on to our next installment. So now, once again, we enter the Mercator-delineated bounds of the Cartography Hut. And in this instance, we're going to uh, mine some story threads from an interesting uh, story that comes out of Mount Washington uh, near Los Angeles, uh, where a treasure trove of maps were found in a, a cottage by a real estate agent who was assigned the task of uh, selling this cottage after its inhabitant had died. And he it turns out, had assembled this incredible collection of historical maps and that everything in this little small 278-square-foot space was a map crammed in somewhere from the uh, map sh plastic shower curtain to all sorts of rare and uh, previously unknown map sources. And I think that this sort of is a real-life example of something that really feels like the beginning of a scenario that could happen in a bunch of different contemporary genres. So I thought we could, uh, first of all, uh, riff off of this idea a bit. But, uh, but at first I'd ask you, Ken, if you could find one map in this archive to steal away from the uh, L.A. library and put in the Ken library, uh, what imaginary or real-life map would you hanker for? Well, uh, the, the actual collection seems to be fairly high on commercial maps. Uh, Maps that were, you know, sold and published, not so much the treasure map to the Lost Dutchman Mine or uh, whatever. But I think that uh, California being what it is, it would be a real shame if there weren't maps to, say, uh, the Reptoid Tunnels under Los Angeles or the Lemurian Caverns in Mount Shasta or something that would have been published maybe by a, a theosophist prayer group back in the 30s uh, when uh, the art of map making and the science of map making were both uh, fairly near their peaks, uh, and so you would you would have something uh, in my imagination akin to the production values of Manly P. Hall's Secret Teachings of All Ages, which is a gorgeous work of American Rosicrucian uh, monomania. And and if you had a map like that of sort of a secret Los Angeles or a secret San Francisco Bay Area or even a secret Mount Shasta, although that's inherently less interesting to me because cities are more fun than even isolated Lemurian UFO mountains. Uh, I, th I think that would be a great map to, to stumble on. And then, of course, the but-what-if-it-is-real moment that begins the game could start immediately. Right. Uh, of the maps listed, the thing that I think is most uh, exciting is that they found Los Angeles street guides from 1944 that were never before been seen by map experts. And this sort of points to the degree to which all the things that we have around us in terms of not only maps but other uh, bits of information, we think of them, you know, if it's printed... It will be around pretty much forever, but here is something, you know, fairly recent, a commercial street guide that basically until this uh, horde was found is considered lost. And if you're playing a sort of a hard-boiled detective game in L.A. in the 40s, hopefully someday there will be a, a facsimile edition of this or, or that can be uh, perhaps even uh, hijacked for gaming purposes. And, and so you mentioned the idea of finding... Uh, a map to uh, something impossible that would begin the uh, the scenario. Another way to use this as a springboard would be the you find the map that somebody else doesn't want you to have. So it's not the discovery of the map that uh, kicks you off immediately into adventure, but you cart this map away as an archivist at the L.A. Uh, library and you sort it away. And then you discover that someone is trying to uh, break in and possibly even kill you because of something that you assume is in the collection. And then the first stage of the investigation becomes uh, who is chasing me uh, and also what in the collection are they chasing me for and what is it that they don't want me to have. And that could lead into adventures in all sorts of different genres. Yeah, using the map as a MacGuffin is, you know, uh, terrific, obviously. But for my money... Uh, MacGuffins, I mean, let, let's say that you've got a map of um, uh, 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 Toluca Lake in 1952, and the reason that you are being chased for it is because 
you know, someone wrote down the identity of um, uh, the, uh, the the KGB's top agent in Southern California on the back of it. That's they could have written that on a napkin or you know hidden it in a Coke bottle if you'd found a collection of Coke bottles. Uh, for me, a, a map guffin should actually, uh, you know, unlike a regular MacGuffin, actually have a value and a purpose within the story, or else part of the fun of setting it in a map archive is a little bit lost. So I think, you know, a treasure map, or uh, the kind of map that, um, uh, when you look at it, it, uh, it it spells out something that no one else has noticed about the about the ground cover, or maybe uh, in this case, something where you know, three of these obscure maps all together point you to uh, the leyline network, or to uh, the location of um, uh, the risen Nyarlathotep, or whatever, and that, or uh, reveal the existence of a cartographic conspiracy that's been keeping uh, the town full of fairies hidden uh, in Southern California low these many years. And you could certainly play with the idea of the map to something that doesn't exist. That you could be going through your uh, collection of four 1944 uh, Los Angeles street guides and notice that. Three of them are identical, but the fourth one, these streets are marked differently, and they're slightly different than not only the other map guides, but reality. And then if you go to find the spots on the map that are different than reality, perhaps that could be your jumping-off point to a reality-hopping campaign, where if you go to the right intersection at the right time, uh, with the right frame of mind, that enables you to cross over into an adjacent reality. Yeah, the you know, the notion of... Uh four identical street guides, and one of them has got a stamp on it saying, um, uh, passed by uh, military government censorship, Douglas MacArthur, director. And you're like, okay, what's going on with that? Uh, the notion of um, the, the trap streets, which are the map, uh, which are the pretend streets that cartographers put into things like street guides to foil copyright violators, uh, being actual maps to a secret world. Uh, China Mieville uses that in Kraken to great effect, along with pretty much every other imaginable, awesome urban fantasy trope. Uh, and so certainly uh, using the trap streets either as, as you say, a map to a, a parallel universe or to a wainscot uh, world uh, is one possibility. Another thing is that the trap streets might have some other effect, that uh, their creation was itself a ritual, and that uh, you know putting them onto the maps and sort of putting them out there is an attempt to sort of retune Los Angeles in some way that... Uh, Maybe even the map makers don't understand because they were the glove on the hand of the evil conspiracy, whoever it happens to be. And of course, you've got your even more basic plot is the map with the X on it that leads to a treasure. And you could have as uh, if you want a really simple storyline, like for a convention run, it could just be a matter of your uh, getting to the uh, X first before the uh, other rival librarian gets to it. Or you could have the old switcheroo where the thing that's supposed to be a, uh, you think is a pile of uh, 1944 banknotes instead turns out to be part of a buried, crashed alien craft or uh, any number of different uh, MacGuffin switches become possible from the map board. Yeah, or um, a map that uh, might be uh, the, the map that was used by someone you know, who is marking out a ritual uh, or keeping a rendezvous and they, they put their little notes, you know, uh, midnight on this street corner or 1215 Oleg was not there or whatever. And so you're not just finding a location in, in space. You're also sort of searching out a location in time. The, the map as diary or the map as a mystical record, I think is another really strong thing that you can do with, with it as opposed to a, a pure treasure map, not that there is anything at all wrong with a pure treasure map, obviously. Uh, there's a great little detail from the actual real-life story, which is that the uh, cottage where these maps were discovered is uh, oh, it's connected to the Mount Washington Hotel. It's not near near the Washington Hotel, but it's this site was uh, created by the same architect, and it's now used by a self-realization fellowship. So you could fictionalize that a couple of degrees and have the uh, sort of mystical organization that's sort of sitting on top of the cottage waiting for someone to discover it and the person with the right numinous insight to find the uh, fourth slightly different map out of the collection of four is not necessarily that they go to that place but that awakens them as the next Merlin in an urban fantasy and shows that they are some sort of prophet or seer uh, that will then uh, lead them into a sort of a, a Harry Potter, King Arthur style uh, transformation into a hero. Another thing that uh, jumps out at me is the notion that it was on 
a uh, sort of, you know, one of those little minor railroads that's operated by someone you never heard of and that never amount to anything, the Los Angeles and Mount Washington Railroad or railway, and that there's, uh, it says, a section of steel cable used to move the trolley cars up and down the hillside remains embedded in the, in the lot. And, of course, to me, that says that's a ley line, obviously, and that part, perhaps, of what the ley line is doing is it's attracting these maps, and that if you, you know, come back to that, uh, that spot, you know, in 10 years and open the closets of the nice people who, who bought the, the bungalow, it's going to be full of, of more maps that they don't remember collecting. That there's something about this spot that is just sort of, you know, tuned either accidentally or for some reason that no one remembers anymore because it was enchanted in 1919 to attract maps and to attract these sort of representations of space uh, down the ley line and into the building. And that there's something is the building is the is the treasure, not so much the map archive. Right. And so once you discover that, the question then becomes, what was the point of this great ritual working to draw all of these maps together? What happens when uh, a critical mass of maps is uh, drawn to the right place? Does it rewrite reality? And what happens to you now that you've moved a bunch of these maps and foiled the ritual, at least for the moment, if you've moved them to the L.A. Uh, library, uh, is, the, uh, is the power of the ley lines going to work against you? Is it going to start possessing people and send them to attack the library? Or send them to sort of steal the maps out of the library, like in the excellent book Island of Lost Maps, which is about a contemptible filthy cad who uh, cut maps out of books and then stole them and sold them or kept them in his own uh, creepy map collection. Uh, but you can use that as a sort of a, a jumping off point for a conspiracy of map thieves who are all, uh, or, or either, not even a conspiracy, like an occult underground of map thieves who are all looking for maps for any of the magical reasons we've already given. And it could be that if you have a unique map of a place that is the platonic ideal map of that place, that it gives you power over uh, that location and the people who live there. Yeah, the the one true map that uh, people have to be on the map amond, and you can see them all moving around uh, when you look at your map correctly. the The owner of the Los Angeles and Mount Washington Railway was himself a turn of the century Los Angeles map maker, which, as far as I'm concerned, is game set and match for my theory. And his last name is Marsh, so he's tied to the deep one somehow. <laughs> Well, I think we've now given people at least 15 different scenario ideas, which is uh, more than a bargain considering how much this podcast costs. And I think we've done our cartographic duty here in the Cartographic Hut and can move on to our next hut and or segment. If the smell of buttered popcorn and the stickiness under our feet tells us anything, it is that we have entered the Cinema Hut. And today in the Cinema Hut, uh, we begin with a look, well, actually, probably complete, we finish out with a look as well, at the career of George Romero, who is the creator of one of the only two uh, new myths to come out of the 20th century. So, Robin, what has prompted you to uh, screen this festival? I was uh, lucky enough to attend a uh, Q&A with uh, George A. Romero, who, as you may know, uh, although he started out doing films in uh, Pittsburgh, has for many years been a transplanted Torontonian. And uh, he did a Q&A at the Tiff Bell Lightbox in downtown Toronto on uh, Halloween, uh, which was the only reason that would convince me not to go around looking at neighborhood pumpkins and kids in their groovy costumes, and so I thought that this would uh, entail a little retrospective discussion on our part. I don't want to just uh, recount everything that was said at this Q&A, which I think is available uh, now or will eventually be available on YouTube, uh, courtesy of the Toronto International Film Festival organization, but I thought it'd be fun to talk about a, a few things about him. He's uh, The thing that struck me about Romero, first of all, is that he's much taller than I remembered him being. Uh, at a previous event when he introduced uh, his favorite film, uh, which is Powell and Pressburger's Tales of Hoffman, uh, which is a uh, colorful, uh, beautiful technicolor, uh, I think late 50s, early 60s uh, opera adaptation. And he told uh, the story again of how as a uh, kid growing up in uh, the Bronx, that he would go to the Janus Films Library and in those pre-videotape uh, days would rent 
his favorite films, including that film, and watched again and again. And it was always available to him until one day he went there and it was out. And as far as he knew, he was the only person in all of New York City renting the Tales of Hoffman. And he went back another time and it was gone and uh, was then told, oh, yeah, there's this other kid who keeps renting it, too, this kid in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, here's his name, uh, Scorsese. <laughs> uh, so they still uh, rib one another over their competition to rent Tales of Hoffman the most times. And it was a really interesting uh, Q&A. They talked about the fact that Romero zombies are interesting because they are more than just zombies, because they take on a mythic impact, because he is always interested in saying something broader than just here's what the mechanics of zombie are. He's trying to frame a different satirical point. Uh, each time. And there's a big shift, of course, when the questions went from being the questions asked by the moderator to the questions that were asked by audience members, and they immediately took on a sort of a familiar uh, series of kind of film nerdish themes. So uh, one person in the audience, for example, got up and said, so what are the rules for your zombies? T to which uh, point Romero had to admit that uh, to the extent there were rules, you sort of have to ignore uh, Night of the Living Dead, because in later films it's established that the zombies only eat human flesh, while in Night of the Living Dead you see them eating bugs on trees. Uh, and uh, he is, of course, famed as the leading exponent of the slow zombie and has uh, criticized uh, people who do fast zombies. He's observed that uh, if you're dead, you shouldn't be able to run because your ankles would break. But then he observed that well, if you look at some of the zombies in Night of the Living Dead, they do kind of move kind of quickly. Um, so again, it's it's the fact that, of course, a creator of these things is not necessarily, at least the first generation creator, doesn't sit down and go, well, here is all of the logical rules for this set of uh, imaginary beings that I'm then going to feature in a line of movies. But indeed, you do what works in the moment and maybe retroactively add a set of rules to it, if that. Um, and there, you know, there are other typical questions, like somebody trying to uh, start a fight and uh, with another filmmaker, and he was actually asked what he feels about his role as the, as you put it, the creator of the modern myth. And in fact, he's not cool with the fact that so many people have taken what he regards as his creation or his playground and, uh, and run with it, that he uh, is not hugely fond of the uh, Walking Dead TV show, for example, which he characterized as being uh, just a soap opera with zombies. Not wrong. And uh, <laughs> is still uh, unable to quite uh, reconcile himself to the uh, mass appropriation of his uh, initial uh, idea. And of course, he uh, also disclaimed the idea that they're zombies at all. He never thought of them as zombies. He's a knows about the whole uh, voodoo mythology, and that's about something quite different. That's about uh, someone who's uh, a living person who's reduced to a death-like state by uh, poison and ritual magic. Uh, so, what is, so, so what does he call them then, uh, uh, terminologically, if not zombies? Um, he says he sort of struggled over the years to come up with different names for them, but uh, uh, I think that there's the word zombie apparently comes up only once in uh, Dawn of the Dead, but uh, he didn't necessarily give him a name. And I guess that's why zombie has stuck or every other new iteration of the zombie comes up with a different term for them, like walker or undead or, or what have or you. Or eater. Eater. Yeah. Or um, I forget what they're called in um, uh, 28 Days Later, but it's uh, it's like uh, the rage something or whatever they are. Yeah, they talk about the rage virus. But again, often I think uh, much like uh, this decade and the last decade, they don't actually have an agreed upon name. Yeah. So, um, uh, not to, uh, take it away from the zombies necessarily, because of course, uh, Romero and zombies go together like Scorsese and gangsters, but Scorsese, uh, for whatever reason attempts to, uh, do other things as well. And Romero, I just want to point out, did possibly one of the great vampire movies of the 1970s, which was a great decade for great vampire movies when he did Martin. And uh, did he shine any light on that, or do you have any light to shine on that? It's uh, For those who have not seen it, um, well, you're fired, but also it is a classic of the naturalistic psychological vampire. The is he or is he not actually supernatural, or is he just a really bent sort of proto-serial killer weirdo uh, character? And it's very, very verite in, in sort of the cinematography, while the uh, sort of the angles and the composition of shots are really wild. 
and it's just a, it's a phenomenal movie and a terrific vampire movie. Yeah, I think it's actually my favorite Romero film, and that's certainly not a knock on uh, the first two of the zombie trilogy, which are also great. The Crazies has uh, a real power to it, but I think Martin is my favorite precisely for that juxtaposition of uh, the creepy and sort of classic horror imagery uh, with a completely realistic treatment. And as he discussed that, that was in fact his desire to create a revisionist version of the vampire myth. And that as far as he's concerned, it's not about a vampire, it's about a guy who thinks he's a vampire and his uh, real downfall, and you might want to scrub past this, people, if you're going out to rent this movie and haven't seen it yet, is of course, as the real problem is his grandfather also thinks he's a vampire, and it turns out that a stake through the chest kills a crazy person who thinks he's a vampire just as effectively as it kills a actual vampire. Not that there are actual vampires in the universe that uh, Romero describes. And I think that the thing that's really interesting about that film is the way that it fuses the uh, naturalism of the 70s American New Wave with the horror genre. And there are a couple of other films that do that, but that's the film that did that at that time when that movement uh, was extant. Another film that's very much inspired by that is Larry Fessenden's Habit, uh, which is also a, a cool but obviously a film that's within the orbit of Martin and is sort of a, a comment on Martin and dealing with the same uh, budget limitations that give rise to the brilliance of Martin. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, again, with, with Romero, we should maybe... Uh, note that along with uh, his uh, evil twin, George Lucas, he also produced an unsatisfactory second trilogy, uh, which we will, I think, skip over unless you have a good word to say about any of those. I actually kind of liked uh, Land of the Dead as a, a late period zombie film that uh, wow. I, I think it's carried by the power of its performances. And it's nice to see that sort of satirical element come back. I can't, however, particularly defend uh Survival of the Dead is the most recent one. Yeah, and, that's the most recent and one. And I haven't seen that one. And the one before that is just uh, uh, an unfortunate uh, late thing. And it's pretty clear that he would much rather be doing other films in his uh, trove of ideas, but that the things that he can get funding for are the zombie films. And right. so that's uh, unfortunate. But also, you know, he's uh, got a, a list of films from his heyday that uh, can hold their heads up with any of the other uh, directors of the 70s boom of interesting intellectual horror. And it's not like, uh, you know, John Carpenter has done a, a really <laughs> An killer lot with his career either. Uh, yeah. film uh, for a long time. And uh, I think that uh, it would be great to see a, a late resurgent from him. But uh, he can, uh, with Martin and those early zombie films and the crazies, uh, he's got some laurels to rest on. And I think Creepshow as well, which is another pretty well-done film, especially given the challenge of the sort of portmanteau or anthology horror film. Yeah, maybe it was the age I was at at that time, but he actually managed to make that sort of EC comics thing uh, frightening, which uh, often it is just done for camp value. Um, also, Monkey Shines, I think there's uh, something to be said for that, that it sort of has an interesting sort of uh, Freudian subtext to it in terms of the... <laughs> There's a subtext? I thought that was sort of the supertext. Well, I suppose so. Uh, <laughs> but still the fact that the, you know, the, the menacing uh, helper is just a reflection of his own uh, psychoses uh, creates an interesting uh, level of uh, psychological depth to it that is more than just a more violent, more disturbing version of Rear Window. Yeah, I, th I think... Um... I, I, yeah, I think Monkey Shines is, is really underrated uh, by a lot of people. Um, Creepshow, for me, exactly captured everything about the EC, which was, at the time the EC comics were being written, they were scary, they were campy, they were self-aware, they were meta, they were funny, and they were just gross. And, you, you know, you talk about faithful adaptation of the material, I, I think Creepshow and maybe L.A. Confidential are the, are, are the two things that you would stand up and say, if you're adapting something... Do this. And, and it's as close as we're going to get to a film version of The Color Out of Space, I think, with the uh, <laughs> Stephen King thing. Yeah, right. Well, there are film versions of The Color Out of Space, and they're uniformly terrible. But I have, I have my hopes that uh, someone someday will realize that there's just this perfect cinematic thing just waiting for them. So, uh, favorite of the original trilogy, Robin? What's, what, do you, what do you say? Are you uh, an Empire Strikes Back guy, or are you a um, uh, 
one of the people who who holds that the uh, the first was was sufficient unto itself. I, I have to go with uh, Don because that's the one where the intersection of the satire and the horror and the action all sort of come together. That the uh, the sort of social bite of uh, Night of the Living Dead uh, is really powerful, but that's sort of delivered right at the end. It's not present throughout the film, and it's certainly the sort of tipping point where he is beginning to wrestle with the limitations of his resources as a filmmaker, but still delivers something that is really uh, uh, effective of filmmaking and not just effective because of its uh, ideas and its uh, atmosphere, but also just because, you know, his skill behind the camera sort of reaches its apex given the, the limitations he was working with. Yeah, I, th- I think um, obviously there's there's nothing wrong with Dawn of the Dead. It's an utter masterpiece, but I've still got to give the palm to Knight, and I think I like Knight not only because it was the first, not only because it is that raw auteur, you know, almost, like you say, unawareness of what his limitations are that, that drives that film, but also that he gets just as much political juice out of, a f- and again, the film's made in 1968 during the, the the race riots all over the country during Vietnam, during all of the sort of, you know, late 60s um, uh, degringolade uh, in this country. And it captures all of it without being quite as on the nose as Dawn is about consumerism or Day is about regimentation, which are both terrific films and both do those things very well. But I, I like the fact that it, it bubbles up almost, you know, uncontrollably out of out of Night of the Living Dead without necessarily being... Uh, you know, a, a constant uh, grace note throughout the, the production and throughout the script. And also, it's just, you know, you have to stand in awe of something that, that literally invents a new thing, uh, which is something that doesn't happen very often at all in cinema or in popular culture. And and I guess we could devote an entire other segment to the nature of the zombie myth and why it uh, appeals to us so much at the uh, current time. And maybe we should... Uh, mark that indeed down as a uh, thing to discuss later, but at this uh, time, uh, before zombies come and shatter the confines of the cinema hut, I think it's time to beat a hasty retreat. out an episode with an installment of Ken's Time Machine. As longtime listeners know, uh, this is the segment in which Time Incorporated uh, sends Ken back through its chronological vortex to redress a uh, historical atrocity, wrinkle, or problem. And in this case, they've uh, got a hefty assignment for Ken. They would like him to do something about the uh, rise to power of Augusto Pinochet, the Chilean dictator, who in 1973... uh, overthrew the elected socialist government of Salvador Allende and murdered him and proceeded to uh, kill somewhere between uh, three and 10,000 people, in turn 80,000, and uh, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 people were tortured by his regime, including uh, women and children. So on the grounds that uh, a uh, the ideal democracy does not outsource its tyranny, they would like uh, you to go back and with the benefit of hindsight, which uh, is part of their motto, uh, go back and deal with this. It's on the T-shirts that you get at the um, uh, at the corporate picnic. It's on the business uh, cards. Uh, uh, Time Incorporated. Hindsight is our specialty. Reap the benefits of our hindsight. Um, yeah, the thing about uh, Pinochet is that, uh, like uh, Lyndon B- uh, Johnson said of Somoza, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. So the amount of sort of uh, clear-eyed uh, criticism of him that could be leveled back in the bad days of the Cold War was muted. Uh, but he was, uh, if anything, your your numbers seem a little low to me. I think that uh, the brouhaha in 1973, the coup d'etat, probably killed the three to 10,000 people all by itself. And then over his uh, 15 years of dictatorship, he probably vanished probably at least another 10,000 people and maybe as many as 30,000. I don't know that they've got you know, sort of hard numbers yet, that being, I guess, the point of vanishing. Well, that, that is the nature, of course, of all of these atrocities in various 
tyrannical dictatorships, whether installed by U.S.-backed coups or not, is that the nature of death squads and uh, internments and a, a lot is that you do not end up with a real uh, body count that you can pin down. But it's suffice to say that this is way more murder than we want on our docket. Absolutely. Um, and I think that the simplest way to get rid of Pinochet is to uh, get Allende to lose the presidential election in 1970. Because, of course, without Allende winning uh, the election with slightly over a third of the vote and then proceeding to nationalize the country and violate the Chilean constitution and cause all manner of brouhaha on his own level, although not with the sort of sanguinary consequences of Pinochet, certainly, uh, you don't have a military coup against uh, the government. And in fact, Chile was at that time unique in South America as not ever having had a military coup, I believe. And so if you sort of prevent uh, Allende from overreaching and attempting to uh, socialize the government of Chile, you don't have a coup, you don't have all those people disappear, and you certainly hope that Chile, over the course of its, uh, as, as like I say again, its history of uh, civilized democratic behavior, uh, reaches the, uh, the sort of comfortable middle-class state that it is today, um, without the necessity for all of those deaths, as you point out. So the way to do that, as I uh, suspect, is sort of a threefold approach. The first is that um, the uh, Allende uh, was the candidate of the Popular Unity Party, which was neither, and so it shouldn't be too terribly difficult to, inst uh, to instigate a number of squabbles and walkouts and angry uh, back-and-forths amongst his coalition partners. Uh, well, one of his coalition partners, uh, the Radical Party, was, had undergone a series of arguments within itself as to how radical it wanted to be. And I think that there is a good chance that uh, you could, uh, maybe with certain inveiglements and in inducements, cause it to uh, continue to cause problems for the Popular Unity Coalition in the run-up to the election. So that would be one leg of the tripod uh, uh, on the theory that pretty much South American politicians are not uh, given to not scream at each other if there's a reason. It, giving them a reason seems fairly trivial. The second leg is that after Salvador Allende won in his very, very narrow uh, margin, like about uh, 30,000 votes, give or take, um, there was a standoff while the, uh, the, the legislature uh, got to pick who the next... Um, uh, president would be, and traditionally they have, they picked the guy who won the most votes, but since nobody really wanted Allende to run the thing, because they suspected quite rightly that he would nationalize the economy and wreck everything, they were sort of casting around for reasons not to do that, when a bonehead named Roberto Vio, who was a, a quasi-popular general in the Chilean army, attempted to kidnap uh, the, the army commander-in-chief, René Schneider, and shot him uh, in the course of their uh, ridiculous activities. Um, and as you might suspect, since it neither kidnapped anyone nor fixed the problem, it was a CIA plan. <laughs> <laughs> and um, although Richard Helms later claimed that he'd, uh, he, he had never given the go-ahead, which is a lot like saying, you know, I just set the car in gear. I didn't push it over the cliff. Uh, so anyway, Vio, before that, had been involved in a mutiny in the uh, Tacna barracks in Santiago, where he had uh, very bravely held out for uh, raises in military pay and an increase in military uh, power in the government and all manner of other relatively terrible ideas. The military was underpaid, certainly, but it was not so underpaid as all that. Uh, certainly compared to the rest of Chile, it wasn't that underpaid. Uh, and I think that the way to fix that is to make sure that there is a plentiful amount of Pisco in the Tacna barracks when he decides to make that his headquarters, so that everyone gets good and roaring drunk. This and is again, after like Ken Hyde operation. This is a Ken Hyde operation, and so without that, uh, we we lose our our uh, our, our sponsorship from the uh, big Pisco uh, uh, brands. Uh, and failing, uh, and there's a backstop to that. Maybe you plant a few regurgitant uh, gas bombs in the air system, so that as uh, negotiations continue to break down over the drunken behavior of uh, General Vio uh, at uh, a prime moment, he comes staggering out, uh, spewing from all orifices, uh, which should pretty much finish his uh, his uh, 
plausibility in Chilean politics. And then, of course, the third and perhaps best arrow in my quiver is that Salvador Allende was on the KGB payroll, which we actually know from the Matrokan archive. So you go to the Matrokan archive in the future and you Xerox the relevant documents and you drop back to the past and you turn them over to a pro-National um, uh, Party newspaper and watch the fur fly. You, you know, you October surprise the guy with the, the fact that he's on the KGB pad. And if that does not swing the election by at least 30,000 votes, well, I'm not really sure what more I can do. But that strikes me as a terrific uh, battery of options to get uh, the non-dictatory Jorge Alessandri uh, made president in uh, Chile instead of the incompetently dictatory Salvador Allende and the <laughs> far too competently dictatory Augusto Pinochet, who, uh, keep in mind, if we don't shoot the army commander-in-chief during Vio's nonsensical coup attempt, um, never becomes army commander-in-chief because there's a perfectly non-shot one in place. And hopefully this will have the broader knock-on effect of establishing a functioning uh, popular democracy in a important Latin American country because one of the problems of that entire era is that it becomes basically a, a war between two competing totalitarian forms and a sort of democracy that we're trying to protect at home uh, dies a, a horrible death for a generation in an entire region. Well, the thing about Chile is, and the reason that people get so rightfully head up about the uh, Pinochet coup, is that up until the coup d'etat in 73, it had a functioning democracy. It was a functioning democracy. It wasn't one of those countries that was, you know, like Paraguay, just, you know, changing out uh, hats and braid all the time. It was a real country and had behaved like a real country throughout, had been, you know, a relatively solid U.S. ally going back and forth. I mean, there's there was a brief spat, I think, over Guano deposits in the Pacific at one point or another. But by and large, uh, we certainly liked them better than we liked Perón's Argentina for many excellent reasons. And uh, so it's not even a question of, of we're sort of establishing democracy in Chile. Democracy in Chile was established in, you know, the 1830s, I think. You're actually protecting democracy, which is exactly. uh, what it says in the mission statement. That was right there on my card. And uh, if uh, you manage to avoid uh, an awful lot of, of grotesquery of the left and the right, then that seems to be the sort of ideal outcome for something like this. Well, I'm glad to hear that there is such a, an interesting and entertaining uh, path to victory on this. I thought that uh, Time Incorporated would start out by assigning you an easy one as opposed to the Iranian case, which involves convincing British Petroleum not to want petroleum. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, Mossadegh is a whole different ball of wax, and I think that uh, the, well, we, I will, I will, I will not um, uh, do work for Time Incorporated for free. I'll wait for them to assign me and put me on the clock before I say how we fix most of that. Uh, well, indeed, if that doesn't sound like an out segue, I don't know what does. So uh, it's time to uh, hand you your uh, debriefing uh, papers and your uh, souvenir pisco and celebrate another job well done in the cause of chronological refurbishment. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website, kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com, where you can specify the beverages you would be buying us if we were hanging out in person. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff. 